Are dents and scratches putting a dent in your day? Introducing Rogerstein Crash Repairs Adelaide, your trusted solution for automotive woes. With over two decades of expertise, Rogerstein Crash Repairs guarantees top-notch service, restoring your vehicle to its former glory in no time. From minor dings to major collisions, our skilled technicians handle it all with precision and care using state-of-the-art equipment and techniques. Rogerstein Crash Repairs saved my car. It looks brand new. Fast, friendly and reliable. I wouldn't trust anyone else with my vehicle. Don't let accidents slow you down. Visit Rogerstein Crash Repairs Adelaide at 14 Penner Avenue, Glind for quality service you can count on. And here's a special offer just for our listeners. Mention this podcast and receive a $100 discount on your repair. Roger Steen Crash Repairs Adelaide. Excellence in every repair. And welcome back to our past players and past legends. Today we've certainly got one of Adelaide's finest past players and past legends, Mark Bickley. Welcome, Bix. Now, uh, t- casual 272 games for Adelaide. Uh, Runner-up the B&F in, uh, in 93, 30-92. Model of consistency, 10 in the top 10 in the BNF in your 11 out of your 13 seasons. 53 games also for South Adelaide. So, well, of course, South Australian Football, Australian Football Hall of Fame, but we'll cover all that a bit later. Welcome aboard, Bix. Hey, good afternoon, guys. How are you? Great, thanks, mate. Um, let's go back to the start. Uh, playing in Port Perry. Yeah, look, it was a um, a great breeding ground for me uh, growing up there, and I sort of, my family was heavily involved in the footy club. You know, Dad had coached, and Mum was involved on all the, the various committees that um, that families often did. And so, pretty much, my earliest memories are, are kicking around at the footy club and going to training and and watching training. So um, there wasn't sort of many days of the week in footy season where you know I didn't have a footy in my hand or you know, getting there early at training with the, the older blokes and having a kick with them. So, you know, the old adage about, you know, having a footy in your hand all the time and kicking it and that sort of 10,000 hours of mastery, I'm, I'm certain that had sort of something to do with, you know, having that great feel for the footy and, and um, yeah, always wanting to get your hands on it. Of course, Bix, too. So you played, played you know, at Solomon Town, then ventured down to North Adelaide. Give us a view what... Uh thoughts back then for a yeah. couple of years. Yeah, so, so I started playing senior footy in the country when I was 16. So I had a couple of seasons in Puri and, and um, I guess caught the attention of North Adelaide, who we were zoned to at the time. So, um, and of course, North were really strong. Uh, you know, they played, I think, uh, 87, you know, they were in the grand final and, and Nick Noonan and, you know, all the Jarman brothers and those great players, David Wildey. Um and so after a couple of seasons in the country, I, I came down and trained with North for a little while, but um, sort of played one or two trial matches, but didn't really fit the mould that sort of Mick Noonan was sort of looking for. And, you know, the highly skilled, uh, you know, beautiful kick and, and all that sort of stuff. And he, he basically said, probably you're better off looking elsewhere. So um, I sort of went back to Port Pirie after doing the pre-season with North Adelaide. A little bit disappointed, but... Uh, probably because of that sort of extra fitness and the, doing that pre-season with North, had a really good year that year and won, won the, the association. Yep. Yeah, the, the Madigan medal it was in Port Pirie. So I think I was 18 or 19 at the time. So at that stage, uh, South Adelaide uh, was being coached by John Reid. John Reid had coached in the, the SGL competition where I was playing, so I still had a lot of contacts in Port Pirie and Port Augusta. And they said, you need to have a look at this young bloke in Port Puri and South Adelaide were at the, the opposite end of the scale to North. I think in 1988, they'd only won one game. Yep. Uh, they weren't all that financial. So they sort of they said to me, look, come down. We can't pay you a whole lot, but we'll help you find a job and get you sorted out with a place to live. So um, I came down with another Port Puri uh, player called Mark Aldridge, who was a, a great mate of mine as well. And we sort of moved in together and... and so sort of played in that first year in 1989 at South and, and fortunately was able to sort of work my way into the the first, you know, right from the start and, uh, and stayed in there all year, which was nice. You 
only played two years at South, but 53 games. So he certainly played, obviously, virtually every game. Yeah, he did miss a game there. He played the first three games in 91 as well. So when the Crows were formed, yep. I missed out on making the side and then played the first three games in 91, uh, which incidentally, uh, South sort of ventured back into the finals that year. Uh, and because I played the first three games, I qualified. So he played two finals. But unfortunately, they were both sort of losing finals and um, and I hardly got a kick. So that wasn't, wasn't a great um, thing for South or me, for that matter. I didn't, wasn't able to come back and play as well as I would have liked. And um, that was the year, of course, with the, the bloodbath uh, grand yes. final. Mm. And Daryl Hart kicked seven or eight goals, I think it was, and, and North won another flag. And and obviously being at South Adelaide there and, and John Reid being your coach, uh, it certainly helped tickle things over with the Crows as well? Yeah, look, um, initially, uh, Reedy wasn't a huge rap for the Crows, you know, as I think a lot of the Sandful coaches weren't, because when the uh, the Crows came in, they were a composite yeah. side, they decimated a lot of the, the teams, and also the, the mechanism between sort of when you didn't get picked for Adelaide, you'd go back and train on a Thursday night, uh, play on the weekend, but then you'd go back to Adelaide and train sort of Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. So it wasn't an ideal setup. So initially, a lot of the coaches, um, you know, Neil Craig was a coach. He made it yes. quite difficult for some of the Norwood players. You know, I don't think they were they were overly uh, wrapped with that system. Um, but uh, I guess later on, I think it was 1995. You know, after John had finished coaching and had a bit of a stint in the media and doing some commentary, he found his way to to the Adelaide Footy Club uh, as the footy manager and, and he was brilliant in that role. You know, he's had a great footy knowledge. He, um, uh, you know, it's pretty tough with the players, which at that stage I think I think we needed in terms of keeping us sort of focused on what we needed to be focused on. There's a lot of distractions as, you know, when we first come into the competition. That was, you know, a really great role for John and he's been, been a constant throughout my career really, you know, attracting me to Adelaide. You know, then through those sort of really pivotal years you know, where we had success at Adelaide, he played a major role in it. And then, you know, obviously he's still involved with the club now and he's a, he's a great friend. Still with uh, the SNFL and, and South Adelaide, you know, growing up in that uh, late 80s, who, who were some of the teams and players that you got to play against that you you just stood back in awe and said, wow, I'm, I'm, on, I'm on the ground with these guys? Yeah, well, well when I, was, I grew up in Port Pirie and I was a massive Port Adelaide fan, if you can believe that. And, um, you know, Russell Ebert was my hero and... and uh, so when we played Port Adelaide, they were really strong in 89 and 90. And, you know, Scott Hodges was at the absolute peak of his powers. And, and I think we played South two or three times in, in that year. And he had an unbelievable year. And I think he might have kicked 10 and 12 and 8. You know, that's the year that he, I think he dominated and kicked 150 yeah. goals. Yeah. yeah. So so he was, you know, at his top, he was just such a, such a physical specimen. He was big. He was powerful. He could kick it a mile. He would aerially. He was great. And of course, Port were a good team as well. And you know they were hard and tough, and they they got to him quickly. And so, you know, he he was a great player. But also, you know, in those early years, you know, playing against Glenelg, and um, I played on uh, Kim Hodgman, uh, who was just coming back on the other side of yeah, you know being North Melbourne, Peter Carey, you know, some of those all time. Star players. My mum Barrett for Glenelg, so she was was always following those, you know, Glenelg pretty closely. So to, to play on the back end and play against those guys was amazing. Chris McDermott, of course, and some of those great Glenelg players that you know came through and had some success in '85, uh, '86. So they were still playing. Um, and and boys like Bruce Lindsay, you know, who was a just such a, a South Australian champion. Michael Ace was another one. You know, all those players. Uh, you know, they were probably 30, 31 in their careers. So 10 years earlier when I was a, you know, an 11 or 12-year-old, they were sort of dominating at, at sample level and playing state footy and all those things. So, yeah, it was, a, it was a great competition and, you know, really thankful that I got an opportunity to play at that level before, uh, you know, the, the AFL came in and, and sort of put its mark on South Australian footy. Now, Bix, you know, footy folklore that you got the last list spot at Adelaide, the 52nd spot. Um, is there any truth in the rumour that there was a, a long run, 10K or so run, you guys did it, got back and timed run and all that, and then Cornsey went, right, go again. 
and you actually were the mm. only person who betted your time and that really helped get the last spot, basically your attitude? Now, I'm not sure about that. I can remember the training session um, and there might be something in that. Maybe it was because I finished towards the back of the group in the first run, so maybe my time wasn't as sharp as some of the others, but uh, there, it was a brutal. It was a brutal uh, first couple of years under Graham. Like his mentality was around, um, you know, the, the Victorians think they're better. You know, if they're doing one ten k run, we'll do two. If they're doing, you know, we heard Carlton did a hundred hundred meter yeah, sprint, so or we did one hundred and ten. You know, like mm-hmm. we all, we always did more, and so it was always sort of challenging. It's not just physically, but mentally to be able to. He basically said. Okay, boys, you know, we've had a big night. You've left it all on the track. How would you feel if I said we're going to do that 10K run again? You know, do you think you'd be able to do it? And some people said no. And he said, I'm sure you'd be able to do it. In actual fact, we're going to do it just so I can prove it to you that you can do it. So that's what we did. There was some disbelief and there was some bikes that didn't finish it the second time, but most of them did. Um, and, And probably at the time, that's what was needed because... There was a bit of an inferiority complex, particularly amongst the younger guys. You know, you can imagine, yep. you talk about Michael Aish and, and Bruce Lindsay being legends. Well, you know, we'd only seen blokes like Dermot Burton and Jason Dunstall and Tony Lockett on TV. You'd never, you know, dream that you're going to be playing against them, you know, in six months' time. So we just needed to make sure that physically we were ready. And, and I guess initially we, we probably didn't challenge, you know, some of those big teams with some of those star players, you know, consistently. But... Over time, and you know, when we realised that you know we were good enough, and we did have what it takes, then mentally we were able to do it consistently and get some good results. I think a part of that too was back then you played at Windy Hill, Victoria Park, Marab, and mm. you know I mm. think that played a f- fairly big part. Now, Bix, you debuted against Eston at Windy Hill. Yeah, that's right. It was a game. It was actually the Crows' first game in Melbourne. Because I think we played round one was Hawthorne was a yeah, win, round two, two was in Sydney, round three was back to um yeah, so back I think Sydney then Carlton and round four was, was our first game in Melbourne at uh, Essendon and and it was blowing a gale and and, and Kevin Sheedy famously had tied down the wind so that we wouldn't be able to work out um, you know, which way the wind was blowing and, and we had there's this great story with Neil Curley where we got to the ground and we were ushered to, you know, Knuckles is at the front. He was the team manager and he said, where's our change rooms? And they sort of sh- took us through sort of under the grandstand to these rooms. And, and North Melbourne were the, playing the reserves game before us against Essendon. And we were using the same change rooms. And they were very sort of primitive, just like a sandful change room, you know, yep. big square room with, you know, 40 hooks on the wall. And all from North Melbourne players had, you know, their bag in front of a hook with all their play with their clothes hanging on the hook with their shoes tucked underneath and curls walked in and they said here's your room and he said well North Melbourne they've got all these clothes in there he said no nah, we're sh- you're sharing it with them and so Neil said <laughs> bloody bullshit we're sharing it and he literally just walked around and grabbed everyone's clothes everyone's shoes everyone's bag and threw it up into a corner so there was this massive pile of everything in the corner and he said, okay, boys, grab yourself a hook. This is our room now. <laughs> and as we were running out to go onto the ground, sort of North Melbourne was sort of waiting for us to come out of the room. And as we were sort of going in the race, you could hear North Melbourne saying, what the hell? <laughs> you know, they'd walk into the room and all there was, was all of their clothes were in this giant pile in the corner of the room, just stacked in a heap. So um, I'm not sure how that went down, but sort of we were out on the oval, so we didn't have to deal with that. But that was... News mentality. He was very combative, and he thought that we deserved our own change rooms, and and you know people had paid their money to come watch, you know the the, the main game, which was Adelaide v Essendon, not to watch the North Melbourne Reserve. Yeah. So he had yeah. no qualms at all. They're just throwing all their stuff to one side. Well, this is the second story we've heard about Knuckles getting rid of uh, uh, the reserves' uh, uh, clothes <laughs> and bags. Uh, we had a story from uh, Victoria Park where he. Um, decided to uh, throw the, the bags out of the door for you guys. So wouldn't be, wouldn't maybe, he's, maybe he's done more work um, uh, instead of the, the coaching box. He was uh, ushering more and more players' <laughs> gear out of the door. Done well. No, look, Neil, Neil was great to have uh, around the place. And, and, you know, obviously, you know, with his passing, um, you know, it does make you appreciate. You hear all the great stories mm, and, yeah, and yep. just to, I guess, to have shared 
uh, a year with him as a team manager and um, you know, a great story that, that I can remember was he was the bloke who told me I was in the team basically for my first game. So I got the training early and Neil came in and said, I need to see you in my office. So I went in, into his office on a Wednesday night and he said, son, you're going to be playing on the weekend. And I was thinking, oh my God, this is great. So Graham didn't tell me, it was Neil that told me. Is it true and you didn't have, didn't have a con- contract? Yeah, that's right. And, and, and so obviously, I, well, as you mentioned, I was one of the last ones picked and there were six of us. They ran out of money, basically, when they, um, when they were, were giving everyone contracts. So there were six of us uh, who they basically said, you're on the list, but we can't actually pay you. So you'll have to, unless you play a game, you won't earn any money this year. T- task and was so, one as well. Task was one, yes. Yes, we've already yeah, had and, Task and on the show, Matthew yeah. Riptack was another one. Um, yeah. And so he said, come into my office. And he, I went into his office and said, you're playing on the weekend now. You've got to sign this. It's a contract and you haven't got a contract yet. So... In my head, I can remember thinking to myself, oh, you know, there's rule 101, never sign anything you haven't read. And I, I remember getting up the courage to say to Neil, I said, Neil, um, do I need, I don't have a manager, do I need to get someone to have a look at it before I sign it? He said, son, I don't care who reads it, it ain't changing. And if you don't sign it, you're not playing. I said, okay, <laughs> I'll sign it. <laughs> and so I just signed it and pushed it back across the desk. So, um, so you know, and he had a bit of a, a chuckle and, and away we went. So, um yeah, he, he. I guess once again, we had at different times. You know, um, we wondered whether we would be able to compete strongly on the big stage. But he's one of these people who he makes you walk a bit taller, and he he just oozes self confidence. So to have him involved early on and to reassure and and um, you know talk to us about what we needed to do and, and assist Graham, I think was a, a huge thing for the footy club. Now, Bix too. Give everyone a bit of a bit more of an education here. Was it the era where you worked? Now you were working as an a Sparky apprentice Sparky yep. at Mitsubishi. Um, yeah, there were some incredible stories with your shift times and all that. What you did and had to go back and forth. Give everyone a bit of an education there, Bix. Yeah, so so when I I, I came down to Adelaide, um, I was a third year apprentice at the lead smelter in Port Pirie. So one of the things that South Adelaide were able to do was organise for me to get my indentures transferred to, to Mitsubishi, which in the old days when we trained at Panther Park was directly opposite, opposite across yeah. the road. So um, so we did that. And so for the first year, um, that was fine. Uh, then I finished my apprenticeship. And, and um, initially I was just working day shift. Um, but then when the Crows formed, and it sort of unfortunately coincided with this, we had this one or two guys who were really happy to work night shift and afternoon shift. And they both, uh, left the the job at Mitsubishi, which meant that we had to go on this rotating roster. So we all had a couple of turns of doing afternoon shifts and night shifts, and and that made it really difficult to um to get training. So I went and saw my boss, and and basically he allowed me to sort of have some time off to go to training when I was working afternoon shifts, but I had to make the time up basically. So the normal shift for an afternoon shift, you start at four and work till twelve thirty a.m. Um, but because I'd leave Mitsubishi at 4.30 to get to Footy Park by 5, we'd you know, start training probably around half past 5, go for two and a half, three hours, get back to Mitsubishi by about you know, 8 or 8.30. So I was having four hours off of work. So I had to come in four hours early. So effectively, I'd start at midday, do four and a half hours, go to footy training, get back at 8.30, 9 o'clock, work through till 12.30 at night, Get home, wow. have a bite to eat, wow. get to bed by about one o'clock, sleep, get up, go to work. So that was sort of two week lots. Now, during the year, you know, during playing season, it wasn't too bad. Um, but pre season, it was just brutal because you're training yeah. so hard. And then the night shift, I, I hadn't worked a lot of night shifts. They'd sort of shielded me a little bit from that. But um, I remember, and this was the end of my, uh, my sort of electrician career, was when. <laughs> Um, it was round one of 1993, and this is a pretty famous game because it was uh, Tony Modra came in as a late sort of inclusion yeah. after Scott Hodges sort of pulled a hamstring or had hamstring tightness after the last training session. So that was a Sunday game at the MCG. Mods ended up kicking 10 goals. We had a great win against Richmond. Um, so we flew back into Adelaide that night. I got, I think the plane landed around 9 or 9.30. So by the time I get home, it's Sort of quarter past ten, 
so my shift started at 12.30 a.m. and I had to work through till around, I think it was 7 or 7.30 the next morning. So played a game of footy, you know, hadn't had any sleep or anything like that. So you go into work and you've got a few things that you have to make sure you have to do. You know, really the night shift is around making sure the ovens and all those things start on time so that when the, the production line is ready to go, everything's up to speed and up to heat and all this sort of stuff. Um, but also while you're there, you also do a bit of other sort of general wiring. And and I remember I started sort of doing this wiring and I was you know, getting a bit sleepy because it was probably two or three o'clock in the morning and you're working on your own, um, which isn't great. So you're not allowed to work on live wires. So you're doing, um, you know, these big panels that are yet to be commissioned. So I started doing that and then I sort of all of a sudden just woke up. I'd actually fallen asleep and where I was working, Whilst that cabinet wasn't live, the one next to it was, and I'd sort of fallen into the other cabinet and fallen very close to a, a whole heap of live wires, which is incredibly dangerous. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, if I had rolled over whilst I was yeah. asleep and rolled onto these high voltage wires, I would have been just fried and it would have been four hours before anyone found me. So at that stage, I said to myself, look, footy's getting more and more serious. I just can't be doing these yeah, crazy shifts and trying to sort of work really hard and, and also getting the best out of myself playing footy. So I um, went to the boss and said, no, nah, this is what happened and it's too dangerous and we can't do it and found myself another profession. So I went and worked with SA Brewing for a, a little while. Wayne Jackson was the yeah, the, right. uh, the CEO. Nigel Smart had been working there for a little bit. So um, they organised the job for me there. So I became um, one of the toughest jobs in South Australia at the time, selling West End Draft, and it was about the only only beer you could buy. <laughs> Fair enough, uh, mate. Um, in ninety two, ninety uh, sorry, ninety three, you uh, runner up best and fairest. Uh, that's a fair effort after only being at the or in the AFL for a couple of years. You'd be pretty ch- chuffed yeah, about look, that. Yeah, it was. You know, like the first year was really about just establishing myself, and I was lucky. I came in and played. Um, came in in round four and played every game after that. Then. In 92, which was, you know, a really good season for me again, I think I might have finished third in the best and fairest in my second season, which was good, and then finished one better and second in 1993. And we had a great year that year. And it's probably, when I look back, uh, it's probably the, my sort of best year at footy club. Tony McGuinness, who was a star, he uh, he won the best and fairest. I think he won it quite comfortably. But, you know, we had, you know, some, some great players that year and, of course, went sort of, deep into the finals and, you know, but for a couple of kicks could have played in the grand final. So I guess, you know, that was that was good. And then pretty much after that, I just had this a wretched run with injuries for, for two or three years after that before. And the, and the club had a wretched run as well with changing of coaches and that before Blighty came. So, um, yeah, it was um, 93 was a, a great year. Like I said, McDermott, McGuinness, they were great players. It was the emergence of Sean Wren, you know. Um, it was this sort of blend of old and new. So, you know, Mark Rusciuto made his debut that year. So there's lots of great sort of older players who were still sort of in really good form. And then we had this new wave, you know, Nigel Smart, Ben Hart, Mark Rusciuto all coming through. So, yeah, we were, when you look back, that side, more than capable of, you know, going all the way. But unfortunately, weren't able to do it. Yeah, look, that- and I know there's a bit of footy folklore of you breaking wind in the bloody second in, in the game <laughs> against Essen. And I, I've always found that quite bizarre and ridiculous. Let's go back to the the game against Carlton where we kicked poorly for goal. Um, let's be honest, you were a unusual matchup for Craig Bradley. Um, mm. And in that game, I think Carlton we butched it. Let's go to the Essen game. We were seven up at halftime. Unfortunately, Sean Wren missed, missed an easy one just before halftime. And then Jars missed one of the goal square, in the, goal square in the in the third quarter. Now, that's a tad more important and a bit more relevant to the result than, than someone, someone yeah, <laughs> yeah, et cetera. Yeah, uh, look, I think the other one is is, is more the uh, the comedic value. Yeah. But you're right. And, and, and it's funny because uh, I think after that game, uh, consciously or subconsciously, a lot of us, well, I, I, I'll speak to myself personally, I thought to myself, you know, as disappointed as we were sort of missing out on going into the grand final um, after the Essendon game, the, the, uh, the, the overwhelming thing was, 
well, guess what? Next year we'll be back yeah. and yeah. You know, I'll be better and Nigel will be better and Rennie. Ren and Shudo and Hart and all these great players. You know, we're, we're going to do this. But, you know, you just you just never know what, what fate he's going to hold. And, um, and so, you know, when you do look at that game, you know, like I said, you know, Essendon were just coming a bit and then we, we got that sort of opportunity with Jars in front of goal. And I think we're still five goals in front, you know, and you think if you kick one there, you just steady and all of a sudden it's back to six goals again or it's back to five goals or whatever the, the margin was. And it's just enough to calm everyone's nerves. I think what happened, you know, you get a miss and everyone's sort of shoulders slump a bit. They get a kick in and then I think they went down and within the next minute they got another goal and that, you know, the crowd started sort of growing and all those sort of things happened. So, you know, and... and and I guess the irony of all of it is, you know, Andrew Jarman in all my time, you know, like his brother Darren, he's just the most skillful, wonderful player, you know, that you've ever seen. And, you know, I reckon today he could he could kick that goal, you know. Like he, he just, I'm not sure, you know, sometimes it's just, it's a one in a, he misses that one in a thousand, yeah. I reckon. And, and it just uh, happened yeah. to be. He might have missed one for Gazer in an important moment of a prelim final against <laughs> oh, uni, really? uni in it because it may have been the person speaking to you at the moment kept yelling at him, Jars, remember the okay. lot, remember the kick against Essendon. <laughs> remember, and after he's missed, he's turned around and he's told me where to go forward and multiply. No, very I, I can imagine, yes. yeah. yeah. But, but that, that, you know. It, Sort of if butts and candy nuts, isn't it? And and unfortunately, yeah. that that was what happened. There, there was other stuff around, you know, Scott Hodges coming off the ground yeah, when many thought he should have been on the ground. Yeah. There's, there's lots of you know, and that's what happens when you lose. You know, you yeah. you magnify every decision that's made, every handball that's missed, every kick that's missed, um, and and I think that's what that's what's been happening. And um, you know, when we think about you know success in '98, you talk to to Wayne Carey and he'll, he'll tell you that he should have won the Norm Smith playing for Adelaide because he kicked five goals for us. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. they, every North Melbourne supporter rude, you know, the things that they did wrong. But yes. so, you know, Essendon, that, they, were, they were a phenomenal team. I think they, when you look back, the Baby Bombers, I think they had, you know, a, a huge number. A and Michael, Michael, Long was unbe- Michael Long was yeah. unbelievable. He tore that game apart, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Once again, I might have spent a bit of time on him as well. So how was I going? You know, after having a great year, I played on probably the, you know, the, the best player for the opposition. Should have called for a motorbike. Was, yeah, should have called for something. Yeah, uh, but you know, like that's what happens. You know, to be able to, you know, particularly when you get to the pointy end, the, those teams are full of great players. Michael Long, um, you know, Tim Watson in his comeback. Buick was a it was a dynamo. James Hurd was sort of making his way. Joe Mercedes, Mark McCurry, you know, there's just Jason Johnson, all, all those they had this unbelievable crop who, of course, went on and, and formed a, a huge basis of that team, that great team in 2000, which went through and only lost one game yeah. for the year. So, you know, they'll be measured as a really good team. Matthew Lloyd, you know, was another one. Young Fletcher. Uh, yeah, Dustin Fletcher, yeah. So, you know, you can, we'll probably name, you know, five or six, you know, Hall of Famers in, out of that group. So um, they're a formidable outfit. But as I said, from that moment uh, after that, you know, Graham Corns, uh, well, I, I got injured in round four of that year. I broke his foot and really didn't play much of a yeah, role. you only played 11 games yeah. for the year. Yep. Yeah, but uh, I think I played the first three, missed maybe 10 and then came back and it really wasn't right after that. So, uh, and then unfortunately that, that was, Graham Corns' last year, remarkably. You know, he had one bad season after making the prelim and, and um, he was out. There was a feeling that we needed a Victorian coach and then um, Robert Shaw came in and, and that really didn't work. So 95 and 96 were, you know, disappointing years where we missed the finals again. So, you know, in pretty short space of time, you go from being a youngster coming through and playing in a prelim final and being you know, a kick away from a grand final in 93 as a 22 or 23-year-old, and then all of a sudden you're, you're 27 and you're thinking, is this ever going to happen? Mm, <laughs> so, yeah. you know, that, that's probably that sort of sense of feeling we had, you know, after Robert Shaw left and Malcolm Blight arrived. That, Can you, you know, give us a bit more on the Robert? Happen. Yeah, you know, well, that was Robert you were, leading, Shorey, you were yeah. leading me into that a little bit. I was going to ask... Uh, <laughs> Obviously, uh, uh, Graham Corns obviously being your first coach, but yeah, why didn't Robert Shaw quite work out at the Adelaide Footy Club? 
Even just a bit more balance, because yeah. I think we just bag the crap out of him. Because he's Victorian, yeah. And, yeah, yeah, look, I think he, uh, there was high expectation, and I thought um, he had a lot of he had a lot of expectation on himself as well. And so it just didn't quite work the way he would like. I think it, when he was coaching Fitzroy, he was able to extract every little bit out of those players. And even if they didn't win, they, you know, they went close and people really respected them. And then, once, you know, um, the consensus was, well, you've now got a good team. You've got a good bunch of players that can play. Let's see you do the same with them and make finals. And it just it just didn't work. He yeah. just didn't uh, quite sort of gel with the players. He, um, uh, you know, he, he had uh, lots of different tactics that were confusing at times. He never really settled on one way of playing and that, and that, Sort of didn't help us. Ironically, so that's exactly that... what Sean Tasker virtually said as mm. well. Where Tass said he'd, he'd you'd start with one thing. If it wasn't working, a quarter later he'd change 180 yeah. degrees. That's it. But the one thing that is probably overlooked with Robert Shaw is he he the the, the, the basis or a lot of the, the group of players who ended up playing and being successful in the late 90s really sort of were blooded by Robert Shaw. Um, he he traded quite extensively as well. So, for example, um, Andrew McLeod, Tyson Edwards both debuted in '95. Kane Johnson debuted during that, or, or was drafted during that period. They traded to get uh, Darren Jarman back. They traded to get Kim Costa back. They traded to get Peter Shane Allen and also Peter Caven. You know, so um, you know, there's a whole sort of group of players who um, we, we got away from just being South Australians, I guess. You know, they were, we were able to, you know, like Shane Allen and Peter Cave were Victorian guys and we, you know, um, um, Stanfield was another one, Barry Stanfield. And, and so, you know, like he just took a, a broader view of, you know what, we can't just limit ourselves to being, taking South Australians in the draft and trying to bring South Australians who are in Victoria back home. We, we have to actually cast down that a little bit wider. So, um, so they did that and, and I think... You know, we sort of bore the the benefits of that a little bit later on. So, if anyone you know sort of is looking for a legacy, I think that will be part of what Robert Shaw sort of left to the footy club. And he gave Malcolm Blyder, you know, a, a group of players who were capable and um, that had been sort of put together, but never really uh, gelled or or got the sort of maximum out of themselves, but were primed and ready to go. Was Matty Robin a part of that? Trade as well during that yeah. period. Uh, Matty, I think uh, Matthew might have been a little bit earlier. Okay, fair yeah. enough. Yeah, he was there in '93, I think. Yep. Yeah, so he's in Hawthorne's start '91, then by '92, then came back '93. Right. Broke his leg in '93. Ah. That's right. That's against Sydney, yeah, which was vital. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And and moving on, obviously to Malcolm Blight. Uh, you know, he would have brought a pretty fresh perspective. Uh, obviously, coming over from Geelong. I'm yeah, just bloody being bloody. Yeah, bloody being bloody. Yeah, oh, I think from the players' point of view, it was really, you know, there was, um, you know, players that weren't happy with Graham Corns. There were players that weren't happy with Robert Shaw um, for all, you know, wide and varied reasons. And, of course, when you're not winning, you know, of course people aren't happy. <laughs> you know, footy clubs aren't a great place to be at when you're not winning. And so there's, there's a million different reasons. And so when sort of Malcolm was appointed and... Um, what actually happened was you sort of thought to yourself, well, we're not going to say, you know, this bloke's no good because he actually knows what he's doing. You know, we'd, we'd seen him take Geelong to three grand finals and, you know, consistently finish at the top of the ladder. We, you, you'd hear him speak on, he'd been commentating for a couple of years and, you know, he just spoke so much sense. And so it really was, you know, we've run out of excuses. We can't keep blaming the coach if it doesn't work. This bloke knows what he's doing. If it doesn't happen now, it's it's clearly us. And yep. so there was you know, a sense of an onus. And, and, and also, of course, a lot of players sort of came to the end of their career at sort of the arrival of Blighty. You know, Chris and Tony and Andrew Jarman were all sort of 30 or above and, and that had sort of varied reasons why that they you know, weren't going to continue on. And Weed was at the end of his career. Greg Anderson was just about done as well. So we probably lost, you know, there's five or six or seven guys, you know, in that 30 age bracket. So 
what it did, it just forced that sort of next group of players to say, well, this is our team now and we'll, we'll take ownership of it. And um, like I say, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen on the back of our performance and, and the standards that, that we set. So that was pretty much where our mindset was. And, um, you know, it ended up working really well in terms of spreading the load. We ended up, you know, we had some, you know, really star players, but, you know, pretty even contributions, you know, across the board when you look at it, and, um, you know, from such a, a wide group of, you know, really, really solid players. I already sort of covered my next question or point a little bit earlier on where we all analyse so much and, you know, and all that. And it's, it's when you win, like, you think back, 97, with probably the game being switched after Lady Di part, you know, passing away, start late, you had the... The Lee Colbert mark not paid, mm. the Libba goal, yeah. you know, not given. Yeah. yeah, everything sort of seemed to fall our way, and it's it. You know, to quote the great man John Griffin, you know, Griff, you know Griff as well, mm. obviously from yep. South. Griff's favourite line: "There's a fine line between pleasure and pain," and it was just, it just na- nailed that really. When you think of '97, where just everything fell the right way, and you think, mm. even what did we kick? Was it 12-1 after half time? Yeah, right. fourteen one. Fourteen yeah. one. Sorry, yeah, yeah. And, and was um, was the training uh, ramped up during that period or just prior to that period? With Neil Craig. With Neil yeah, Craig. Uh, yeah. I think I think I think we were pretty fit all year, but there was definitely you know just a little bit of loading in the sort of lead up to the finals. But but it, it, you make a great point. Like the way I describe it is, the planets have to align yes. for you to win a premiership. And and, and the remarkable part is is pretty much from that sort of from 98 forward, it, it's been the opposite. Every time Adelaide have looked like winning yeah. something, that, 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 you know, like that, you know, Andrew McLeod getting, uh, you know, an infection in his foot, Mark Rusciuto getting Rugo suspended. Parvo. You know, yeah. Parvo virus, yeah. you know, like then there's, you know, a million different things. There was, you know, late umpiring decisions and all, all a whole range of different things, you know. Um, so it just, it just proves the point. You do need everything to go your way. You need to have all the planets aligning and, and that's what it was like in the build-up. Uh, it's also like that in the game. You like said, 14-1 and some unbelievable goals and Shane Allen kicking five and, you know, all, all those things. You know, we beat North Melbourne the year after. They North Melbourne kicked eight goals, 22. Mm-hmm. Kicked two goals, 11 in the second quarter. Yeah. You know, all these things, um, you know, fall your way. And, and so, you know, as prepared as you can be and as well as you play and all of that, you still need an element of luck. And, the other thing that I look back on 97 and 98 and, and sometimes it gets a little bit lost. People look at the team and they say, oh, what an amazing team. You know, had Simon Goodwin in it and it had Tyson Edwards in it. And, yeah, they were kids. You know, but they don't play played under 50 games. Yeah, they literally, yeah. Grand so, final so was Goody's 10th game. Yeah. Yeah, 10th game. And, you know, played amazingly. And, and Tyson, you know, had, had been up and down a little bit, but got in there and was just rock solid and so sure with every, every time he touched the ball. And I think that that's the thing. We, did, we didn't know it at the time and we were sort of a bit of a, an unknown quantity. But when you look at that, Edwards, 300-game superstar. Goodwin goes on to be, you know, I think he was a five-time All-Australian, great yeah. player. Rashudo goes on to be an eight-time uh, All-Australian. And, you know, Rennie was just phenomenal um, player. You know, Ben Hart, um, unbelievable and um, one of the all-time great defenders. You know, and so... You know, Kane Johnson ended up, you know, being club captain at Richmond, and you know he was a, he was the only teenager in that grand final in the in the first year. So he went on to be, have a long and decorated career as well. So at the time, you had five or six youngsters, and you thought, well, you know, are they going to stand up? Well, those young players end up going on to be superstars of the game. So that's probably you know um, one of the things we didn't know at the time, uh, and we thought how unbelievable it was, but. Yeah, when history goes back and has a look at it, we'll say, well, you know what, those they were pretty handy players in the end, yeah, the way they absolutely. turned out. Because, um, and you look through that, I didn't mention Darren Jum, but, in, you know, and talk about AFL Hall of Fame, you've got, I think, Nigel Smart, Ben Hart, Darren Jum, and Mark Rusciuto, Simon Goodwin, Mark you know, and, and... Mark Bickley, yeah, and, and, and Andrew you know, McLeod. Yeah, Andrew McLeod, of course. But, you know, Tyson Edwards must get in there one day and, and you know, there might be... One or two others, I don't know, but that's that's a pretty amazing strike rate when you think about how many of 
you know, where all those players come from and how they got put together, you know, it's probably no surprise. You know, it's a bit of a chicken and the egg. You know, when you have success, I think that helps you get those accolades. And, of course, Aaron um, Keating and Brett James played in two premierships a week. And, jeez, yeah. and Keats, Keats certainly dominated off-ground. Don't worry about on-ground, but, jeez, he, he dominated where it, off, where it counted off the ground. Mm, so, yeah, so it's just a memorable time, isn't it? And it's part of South Australian footy folklore and it just captured the imagination of uh, our community at that time when we, you know, were predominantly, uh, you know, Port Adelaide were in their first year, but for so many and for so long and had been that sort of almost like that state representative side. So you'd been at the uh, top of the mountain two years in a row in 97, 98. 99, it uh, sort of fell apart a little bit. Is it a matter of you guys were just cooked? Absolutely. Sean Wren getting injured. You ever look to... For whatever we say about Robert Shaw, he's nice and unlucky. He didn't have Sean Wren. Sean Wren mm, comes mm, back, 97-98, we win two flags. Does his knee mm. on the on the plate at Footy Park and at 99 at the start of the year, and guess what? We bomb again. Mm. I, I, I know that's being too simplistic, but I still say, overall, it's a personal opinion. Sean Wren mightn't be our best player, but I still think he's been he the most important in, player in our football yeah. club system. Agreed. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. He, he was such a barometer to our team. But I think like we trained so hard under Craigie and, and Blighty was a hard taskmaster and he wanted us to get back to that same fitness level. And the other thing that happened, you know, Rennie did his knee, but I think that year we had seven guys have groin operations and, you know, we had blokes with stress fractures. It, 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 and when you play... Uh, you know, a month of finals, two years in a row, you're effectively playing nine or ten extra games. Um, intensity, too. Yeah, yeah. And so for those two years, you end up playing 50 games. You know, if you if you just bomb out in the finals, you know, you, you might play 41 or something, you know, so if you bomb out before the finals. So there's that extra intensity. And, and we, we did train really hard and there were high standards. So it literally all just, it just caught up with us and we had a lot of these cumulative type injuries that, um, that yeah, just robbed us of our, uh, our good players. And then, of course, the other thing that happens, when, you, when predominantly you're playing finals and you're a good team and you're playing the same players each round for two years, you don't introduce a whole lot of new players and you don't get great draft picks because, you, you know, you're yeah. sort of down the back of the draft. Mm-hmm. And so we didn't really have a whole heap sort of coming through. We had, you know, Matthew Clark and Nathan Bassett and... Tyson Stenglon and a few of those guys who were just outside the team. But other than that, we had a lot of youngsters who were untried and didn't really end up sort of amounting to, um, you know, some of that sort of star quality that we had in those previous years. Of course, talking of injuries, yourself with uh, over an island uh, breaking your leg with a Gaelic footy. Yeah, not ideal. Um, in the end, it didn't uh, cost me. That was in 2002 and Charlie Walsh was fabulous. He... Um, got me onto a, a bike riding program and I had a special boot where I was able to ride. And You know, I was actually as fit as any other year in my career. It was my last year. Uh, so, so I did it in October 2002. My last year was 2003 and, and it was as good a year as, you know, I'd had as, you know, in terms of I think it might have finished fourth or fifth in the best and fairest and, and you know, pretty much, you know, once I got the mobility back in my leg after sort of getting the plastic cast off or the moon boot off, and sort of being able to run within a month, I was running personal best time. So that was, you know, all down to Charlie's conditioning work that he did, and and you know having this desire to want to make sure that I knew it was going to be my last year to finish on a on a pretty good note. And we got to the finals, and we end up running into into Brisbane in Brisbane uh, in a knockout final. And um, yeah, that was just a bridge too far, unfortunately. Yeah, one thing obviously in your career, there's the Daryl Wakelin incident, and I think. To, this, again, a personal opinion. It's probably you know, it's a hard one for you to comment on, Bix. But I think if, if a player makes a mistake once in their career, that's mm. what it sort of should be accepted as. If, it, if it's a person who consistently does that, like let's be honest, the number 18 centre forward at Port Adelaide for a while and, and that mm. Port Magpies. Um, if it's something like that, yeah, then the player, and like Barmy, Barmy admits he's got to wear, wear it of things he did in his career. But you made a mistake. Yes, it was a serious error. But it's once. Mm. It's not like Mark Bickley should not be remembered as a so-called mongrel. Yes, Mark Bickley, mm. hard at it, Look, honest, gave everything, gave everything, huge commitment, left nothing on the track. That's my vision of Mark Bickley. And it was a spur of the moment thing too. Yeah. That's the other thing. You can't, you can't hold it against you somebody for that. Exactly right. 
exactly right. Mm. Yeah, you're right. And but you know, everything you do, you end up you have to be accountable for. And you know, exactly what you're saying. It's something I look back on, and you know, whilst you people say, "Have you got any regrets?" You know, the regret is you know Daryl getting hurt, obviously, yeah. and and you know doing that. But at the same time, it shapes you as a person, and and um, you know, and it just it changes your perspective of, around you know head high injuries and all that sort of stuff. You know, I just I was devastated after that, unfortunately. And, and look, and in the end, you. You know, like people still go shopping and people yell out to me and say stuff about that. Yeah. And it is what it is, you know. Yeah. Like, you, it's just something that you have to have to deal with. And it's, you know, I feel worse, you know, for Daryl. He's the one that's got to deal with it as well. And he had no fault of his own. He didn't choose for that to yeah. him yeah. either. So, Top too, but in the end, yeah, a ripping person. Um, but, you know, I think for me, uh, and, you know, part of the way I play, you know, you mentioned. Uh, the, the word mongrel that 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 was part of what I what I brought to the table. You know, you talk about unsociable hawks. Well, the way footy was played, you know, in the in the late well mid to late nineties, everyone was unsociable. You know, like so the you it was it was a pretty it was a brutal game. It was different to what it is now. There was yes. much more physicality, and you actually could go out and look to hurt people. You know, there was no if you you know this, we talk about the sling tackle now. If you tackled someone and smashed them into the turf. And knocked them out. Well, that was, was a, a great. It was a badge of honour. Exactly yeah, because they were they were one short. And and similarly, if someone was running and chasing, and you could bump them in a shepherd and and hurt them, you know that was part of the course. And I think we all see, you know, Marcus Shido bumping, bumping Dean Kemp, and you yeah. look at that, and it's brutal. But yeah. that was part of the course, you know. And and Michael Voss running into uh, Alan Richardson, all all those huge hits were part of the game. In actual fact. That'd be the highlights package at the Brownlow Medal. You know yeah. how many blokes could run through blokes. It was just the way the game was. We didn't know what we didn't know at that stage around concussion and and some of those injuries. So uh, yeah, you know. So it's always, you know, I'm not trying to make excuses, but you know, I played on on the edge, and that one there was clearly, you know, stepping way over the edge of the line. But there was just a tougher and harder edge to the way footy was played. You know, that bit of context to it, I guess. As we said, a bit of a spare of the moment thing, and yeah, it's not what you'll be remembered for, mate. Especially in our eyes, mate. We'll change tact a little bit. Um, you stepped into the coaching box. Uh, how was that experience? Yeah, it was really good. Um, it was well before I was sort of ready, or um, uh, you know, really had the tools to do it permanently. Uh, but the um, the whole idea was for me. Uh, you know, Neil Craig had approached me after I'd been working in the media and was to come and sort of do a bit of an apprenticeship. Um, with Neil as an assistant coach and if the time ever arose where that had success and they were sort of looking for a succession plan that I, I sort of might be that person to, to take over but as it happened you know pretty much 18 months into that sort of what we thought was going to be a four or five year journey um, you know Neil's message had fallen a bit flat and he decided he wanted to walk away so you know I had six games to um to do that at the end of the year and, and really enjoyed it. It was it was quite a tumultuous period. Three and three, Bix. You had a winner, first game, a win in a showdown. And yep. there was one other thing. It's always bemused me, and I'm and that you moved Sean McKernan to centre-half back, and he succeeded mm. at centre-half back. Why? That never happened again in Sean McKernan's career. Has me absolutely <laughs> beat. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it's an interesting one because it, I, you know, most people think it's easier to play in defence than it is in attack, and sometimes Sean did overthink it a bit. Uh, and I remember, well, once again, you know, sometimes necessity is the mother of all invention. And I think that day Ben Rutten might have pulled out with a virus, and so we just needed to find, uh, you know, a big tall player to play in defence. And I think James Podsey Adley was in really good form, so I think Sean played on James. Um, in that match and like you said did really well and, and Geelong were a powerhouse at that stage I think we only lost by not that much so that was you know a really good performance that game and then I think we might have went to Brisbane and won up in Brisbane but um, then you know I was just saying it was, it was a tumultuous period because the expansion teams were coming in and Nathan Bock and, and um, uh, Phil Davis, Davis. You know, they were being wooed away. Jack Gunston came in the mob and said, I don't want to be here anymore. You know, so there was a fair bit going on around the footy club. So um, whilst it was, uh, you know, I was enjoying it, there was 
there was a whole heap of stuff that was going on behind the scenes which made it really challenging. And then we're also telling players, you know, that they, they weren't going to be there next year. So unfortunately, you know, you think about coaching and all the good things, all the good things is around, you know, sort of winning and preparing for the season and all that. I didn't, didn't quite get all that, but I've got some of the crappy stuff at the end, unfortunately, and, you know, telling blokes their career's over and, um, you know, and having to um, talk to players as, as they wanted to sort of go out the door. So in the end, um, love the experience, but, you know, when you when you think about, uh, who was going to be the next coach? It was never going to be me, realistically. You know, on the back of, you know, a very short apprenticeship compared to someone like Brendan Sanderson, who had been at Geelong, and Geelong had been the best team in the competition by some margin, and he'd been sort of the right hand man to um, to Bob and Thompson. So that made a lot of sense, and and I end up staying around and and um, you know becoming really good friends with Brendan, and and you know that first year that that he coached was just outstanding and, you know, but for an amazing Hawthorne team, we end up a kick away from... Mm. And, a couple of shocking, and a couple of shocking umpires. I'm waiting for the whistle for the 50 to Dangerfield. The umpire will get around to blowing that any any second. Yeah, well, in actual fact, Jeff Geeson came and saw us the week after and he apologised. He said that was yeah. the worst umpire's game. I think they do this thing, expected free kicks and missed oh. free kicks, and we were minus 14, I think. We were something yeah. unbelievable. We got crucified. And and he said, well, but rest assured, don't worry. Those the umpires that umpired your game will definitely not be umpiring the grand final. I remember Brendan Sanderson saying, "Well, well, thanks, yes. but that doesn't help yeah. me out a lot." And and that aside, unfortunately, the next couple of years didn't quite work out, and and it was just a tumultuous period again with the Tippett affair, him leaving the club, the club getting sanctioned. Uh, which which forced our hand a little bit with Bernie Vince, you know, to try and yeah. trade someone with some currency to get back into the first round to get Matt Crouch, who we'd had an eye on. Um, then there was, you know, Stephen Trigg was suspended, so we had the CEO, and then Dean Bailey became ill with the, you know, in the preseason of yeah. the the following year, and unfortunately, that um, ended tragically for everyone. Yeah. So the only year that sort of Brenton had. We had his full sort of force of coaches and, and the full support of the club. Was, they finished in the prelim. And the other years, there was all this other stuff going on that he really wasn't really settled as a coach. And in the end, it sort of it cost him and um, they decided to look somewhere else. Yeah, we really think of you. He's pretty unlucky, really. Mm. Now, Bix, you've certainly mm. done a little bit of everything since uh, footy. Yeah. Uh, with your TV, radio, seven years with Rowie, you probably deserve a medal for that as it is. Uh, <laughs> you know, assistant coaching and all that. Just go through that side of things with a bit of everything. Yeah, I look, I, I just, um, I've always sort of been involved in the media. Even when, when I was playing, I was sort of doing stuff on TV. And then when I finished, I ended up sort of, you know, reading the news on Channel 9. So after being sort of lured back into coaching and then when Sando got the sack, it was, I still had a year to go on contract, but I was just a little bit disillusioned because that year, I remember thinking, um, was five coaches sacked in the one year, and it was Bill McKenna, and I think it was Brendan McCartney from the Bulldogs, and then it was Sando, and it was one or two others. And I just sort of felt like I'd always had aspirations of being a senior coach one day, and I feel like, you know what, they're, they're not really treating the coaches very well. And, you know, what if I spend seven or eight years or nine years and I move all around the country to become a senior coach, and then after two years, if it doesn't work, they just throw you on the scrap heap. So I was, I was just sort of feeling a little bit disillusioned with that AFL coaching scene. And so, and, and an opportunity came, you know, I was approached to do some stuff on Double A, and I thought, you know what, you know, when um, a, a great friend of mine, um, we were having this discussion around it, and, and it was, it was, assistant coaching is really taxing time wise and stress and all that sort of stuff. And, and I was telling him, oh, I want to, you know, I want to really, sort of, I wanted to really test myself as a senior coach. And he said, when's enough going to be enough? You know, then you, you, the minute you become a senior coach, you're going to want to keep doing it until you win a flag. And then when you win one, you'll want to do it another, you know. At what stage do you put other things that are important in your life sort of first? And it was, it was a really enlightening discussion. And um, and he was right. And I sort of thought, you know what, you know, forget about putting yourself first and trying to achieve what you want to do and making that the number one priority. Like, what about just, doing something that enables you to lead a bit more of a balanced life. And, and it was a great decision, really. And, and that's what sort of being in the media does 
you still go to the games, you still have an involvement, you're still doing something you love doing, but you're just not sort of flogging yourself, you know, for 50, 60 hours a week and, and missing out on sort of important times with family and friends. And, and that's still, that challenge is still as relevant today as it ever has ever been. You know, there's so many yeah. good people that are sort of moving out of the the coaching industry and that's one of the big challenges facing all AFL clubs at the moment. So, yeah, so worked on AA, worked on some TV on Fox Footy and, and all that and, and yeah, really enjoy it. Sort of all care, no responsibility type stuff compared compared to coaching. And at least it's giving you still the chance to watch your kids on a Saturday morning and, and coaching exactly. Coach, and coaching know, Emmanuel, yeah, carry on Emmanuel. Mm. Have you have you enjoyed that coaching Emmanuel? Yeah, I oh, love it. I love it because um, I'm coaching the first eighteen yep. at the moment, and so you got you know sixteen and seventeen and eighteen year old boys who are you know the school footy is great because a lot of them have you know spent three or four or five years playing together, and you know some of the good players are playing at sample level, and and they enjoy that, but. Playing with your mates is something really special, and there's this sort of obviously this collegiality about it. There's the, the intercol and the rivalry and all those great things, and and then you've got you know perhaps four or five guys right at the pointy end who you know hopefully you're going to be able to steer them and give them an opportunity to, to go as far as they can with their footy. And and this year we had young Phoenix Foster get drafted to yeah, Geelong, Nord, which Nord was boy. A thrill. Yeah, yeah, and. Um, you know, uh, he's got some great attributes and he's, he's got some other areas that he really needs to work on as well. But, you know, doing some work with him this year and getting him some other specialist coaching, you know, a guy called Peter McIntyre, who, who played at the Crows in year yep. one, he's been doing some work with our big tall players. Sam Jacobs comes out and does some work with our, our tools and our rucks as well. So getting some of those some specialist coaching for those young guys in the, in the particularly in the positions they play you've seen him improve in leaps and bounds so that's really rewarding when you feel like you've had some small involvement in sort of getting them to you know pointing in the right direction of where they want to go so um, really sort of enjoying that that sort of um, involvement that I have with the, that sort of age bracket there is great fun so big you know it's been some pretty significant awards over the years and it'd be negligent not for us to mention those. So the South Australian Footy Hall of Fame in 2007, Australian Football Hall of Fame 2009, the Adelaide Team of the Decade, and Adelaide Football Club Hall of Fame in 2021. You know, some, some reflections there, Mark. Yeah, oh, look, I'm... It's a hard one to comment I'm, personally, yep. Well, I'm humbled by all yeah. of it, you know, because I, you know, the Australian Football Hall of Fame, it's... Ludicrous for for me because I just feel like there there's it's such a there's a thousand people that could be in that Hall of Fame you know and and I think on the night in my acceptance speech I uh, this is really about as much about um, the Adelaide Football Club winning its first premiership and yeah. and you know yeah. and yeah. helping steer that. Um, playing a role in that and having that leadership position, you know, through those first two years, and um, as much as anything, because you know, like there's there's other people that have far better records, but in the end, uh, I think the criteria is around how you sort of shaped the game or impacted the game, and uh, and so you know, I'm I'm not um, by any stretch thinking that you know I'm better than a thousand other players. Like I said, there's, there's many more many that could be in before me, but I'm just, you know, just for the privilege and I'm not going to argue with the people who, who selected that. So well, yeah, don't knock it though, Bix. Bix, don't knock yeah, it though. I'm, like, I'll say from a Nord perspective, I, I know we, it was 21 years where we tried to get Michael Taylor in. So, hey, don't knock it, Bix. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm just so great, grateful. And, and similarly with those other attributes, you know, the, the Hall of Fame at the Adelaide Football Club and and the life membership at the Adelaide Footy Club, it, it's it's a huge sense of belonging. You know, it's um, you know as much as I'm so thankful to the South Adelaide Football Club for the opportunity they gave me. If someone says to me, you know, which team do you do you, do you attach yourself to? I'm an Adelaide Football Club person. Yeah. That's my team because that's where I spent, you know, close to 20 years. You know, 13 as a player and six as a coach. I think it is, and, and so. They're my team. That's my. That's who I feel like I belong to, and 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 so you know the relationships with the people that that started the club, that 
have been stalwarts at the club. You know, the fact that I'm still welcome to walk into the place now and Matthew Nix and his crew are doing great things and um, and invite the past players down there as often as we can. And, and so, you know, that, that gives me great pride. And, you know, and I love nothing better than walking down there with my two boys and, and we go and watch training and people come up and say good day and shake their hands and, and they feel like they're a part of something as well. So it's just, it's a really special feeling for me with the footy club. Five kids too, Bix, so they're busy there. <laughs> well, they love their footy, which is great. <laughs> yes. um, and yeah, like they're just, they're going to hopefully write their own story and whatever level that gets them to, as long as they enjoy it, that's, that's the main thing. So that's, that's my message to, yep. to them. And um, yeah, they're both very different and um, who knows where it's going to take them. Mate, uh, you're certainly part of the uh, patchwork quilt of the uh, Adelaide Footy Club and um, we've enjoyed having a bit of a chat to you tonight and taking a bit of a trip down memory lane. Uh, we'd be remiss not to uh, promote, obviously, your new radio gig. <laughs> yes, well, I'm, I'm teaming up with Gary Walsh. He's the only bloke busier than, than most at the moment. He, he's, he's footy, he's the world game football, he's, uh, he's the 36ers, he's cricket. cricket he, yeah. I saw him doing some stuff with beach volleyball the other day. He's at the tour down under. He's he's Mr. Sport in South Australia, so him and I are doing breakfast on SDN. I'm kicking off um, on February the 14th, so um, we'll be looking forward to doing that. And, uh, yeah, it's, once again, it's a privileged position to be in where you get to talk about sport and, and take the pulse of the state sort of every morning. So, uh, yeah, really looking forward to doing that. Fantastic. Mate, we uh, have loved chatting to you. We will obviously be listening on SEN uh, for some of those comments in the morning on the way to work. And um, Mark Wigley, thank you very much for joining us tonight. Greatly appreciate it, Bix. Always enjoyed seeing you on a Saturday morning as well and obviously speaking to you over the years on uh, on AA. No, no, I appreciate the interest. A quick one other point too I do want to add. It's always a bugbear of mine of the publicity which sports people get for the bear, you know, Things off mm. the ground, off the ground, and that show. Very rarely do the footballers and sportsmen get mentioned for how much they do for the charity side of things. I'll be honest; I've yeah. contacted Bix a couple of times. Bang in straight away. Uh, you know, a couple of fundraisers we've done, you know, and that sort of thing should get far more publicity than what it does. I'm talking overall there, Mark. Mm, no, nah, look, you're right, and um, you know most players give of their time generously and, and like so they, they most of them realise it is a privileged position and, and they grew up idolising people and, and so they sort of give back fairly well and there are some that do it better than others, you know, and you know, recently whether it's Bokey or Taylor Walker or Rory Sloan, there's just some amazing people, you know, who use their profile in the right way. So um yeah, I, I think you're right. But in the end that's that's the lot you take on when you're a footy player and if you can give back and use that position well, that's, that's, I think that's, that's something that's a privileged position to be in. Mate, just quickly before we let you go, how do you think the Crows and Port will go this year? Uh, I, I think Port will do better than Adelaide. Um, I think they're, uh, towards the end of last year, you know, they they started to sort of hit their straps. I think that Lysette coming back in will help. I think Horn Francis and you know, one of either um, Junior Rioli or or um, Fantasia. Arachio, Fantasia will give them, you know, or both will give them a bit of bite. That small forward they probably lacked a little bit last year. So I, I think Port will be in the bottom half of the top eight. Mm-hmm. Adelaide, I'm not sure. It's really difficult to get a read on Adelaide. Um, I think they certainly improved with bringing Rankin into the side, you know, where he plays. Uh, is going to be interesting. You know, they're talking midfield, but I think I think it's probably going to be more sort of Tom Papley midfield than Mocky Neal midfield, if you know, sort of get what I mean. And yep. so there'll be some, some spurts in there. But I think you're going to want him close to goal because that's where he does it. That's where he's most dangerous, you know. If he has 10 possessions and kicks four goals, sort of Charlie Cameron style, that's going to be much better than him being on the ball a bit than having... 25 possessions, you know, and not kicking any goals, you know, because there's other players that can do that. So I still think his best footy will be, you know, around the, the forward line and that's where he, he's going to win games for you. So I think they're going to try and strike that balance. Um, and, and I think some of the other younger players will improve, but 
you know, my, you know, in terms of pushing up into the eight, I'm just not not sure they're there yet. And when you look at most of the sides in the top eight, I think they've all improved. You know, Brisbane, uh, Geelong, um, who else is up there? Sydney, you know, a good young team that made the grand final. I think they're also organically get better. And so Richmond. I think Adelaide will improve. Yeah, Brisbane, they've done really well. But will they, can Adelaide improve more than the other, the top eight teams, or in actual fact, the 13 teams that, that finished in front of them. So that's the challenge for Adelaide. And in my mind, you know, the 23 rounds, I think Adelaide will play 13 games in South Australia. So, you know, that's that's a bit of a bonus for them as well. So you would think they win, you know, between eight and 12 games, I reckon. And yep. if they win any less than that, they'd be really disappointed. And if they're in the top part of that, around 11 or 12, I think that's probably where they'll be aiming. So just, they need to take another step forward, basically. They, they can't yeah. afford to mark time. As they, always, the voice of reason, Vic. Sorry? As always, the voice of reason. Yeah, so that's, that's what I think it'll yeah, end up. No, I'd agree. That's I still... things go well, they can't finish in the eight, but I just yeah. think the more likely outcome is that sort of 9, 10, 11 wins. I still think a lack of a, you know, I think they probably still lack a key defender, Bit short, probably. Mm. Uh, we're only average in ruck and lack and lack. Probably still a bit of class in midfield. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. All right, mate. We better let you get out of here. You've probably got uh, five <laughs> kids running around, going where, where have you <laughs> yeah, been for the last fine. hour? But, mate, thank you very much for your time. Appreciate that, guys. See ya. Greatly appreciate it, Bix. All right. Bye.